Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's story gives us an inside look of what it feels like to be a monster living among us. Please enjoy Schrodinger's Beast. I yawn and stretch and rub my eyes with my hands. I'm still half asleep, but then it hits me with a jolt. It's my birthday. I scramble to get out of bed and get all tangled up in the sheets and then fall on the floor, but I feel nothing. I spring up, race down the hall shouting, it's my birthday. And then I throw open the door to the other bedroom and pounce on mommy and daddy's bed. It's my birthday. My parents are already awake and they're laughing too, but that doesn't feel very nice. And I can feel my face getting all hot. Stop laughing at me. My mother wraps her arms around me and squeezes me tight. She's still laughing, but I don't feel so angry now. When I finally squirm free, I hop off the bed and I pronounce, I'm five now. I'm a big boy. I turn and run back to my room and slip on my light-up Transformer sneakers. I'm still in my pajamas, but I burst out of the back door to my yard and I shout out to anybody who can hear me that I am five now. I play alone in my jungle gym for a bit until mommy calls me in for my birthday pancakes. I make her explain the afternoon's party to me again and again. I love to hear it telling me who's coming and what kind of fun we're going to have. The bouncy house is coming to be set up soon. Daddy's actually making the cake while I eat breakfast and guests are coming around noon. It's mostly my aunts and uncles and cousins, some people from my daddy's office with their own kids, and mommy sent home invitations to all the parents of all the kids in my preschool, so I bet a bunch of my friends are coming. Of course they'll come. There's a bouncy house. And I just know if they come to the party, they'll change their minds about me. It felt like I waited forever, but finally it's time for the party and it's going great. I can see my little kingdom from the deck. My daddy's at the grill making hot dogs just the way I like them, extra crispy. The aunts and uncles all are laughing and talking to each other. Even my doggy's wagging his tail. People are feeding him bits of hot dog and he's eating up potato chips that are on the ground. But most importantly, their kids bouncing around and squealing and wrestling and they're happy. All the kids are happy. They must like me now. They must be my friends now. I run from the deck to the bouncy house and I dive right in the middle of everybody. Nobody runs away and nobody yells cooties and nobody shoves me out of the house. That's the only gift I wanted, to be normal and liked by the other kids. Maybe everything will be okay after this. This birthday's magical, just like I knew it would be. But after a couple of hours, the grown-ups just start to pack it up and head home. They're going to end my party. They're going to end my magic. Suddenly, I can feel my face get all hot and red, but then I start to feel something else, something new. It feels like I'm going to throw up. It's the smell of like charcoal and hot dogs and sweet cake and it's all mixing up and it's making me sick. I hadn't noticed the smell before. And then suddenly my teeth are hurting. They hurt a lot and my face is starting to itch. 
When I reach up to scratch my face, I cut right into my cheek. My soft little fingers now feel swollen, like they're gonna burst open. And my nails, which mommy just cut short last night, feel so sharp and pointy that they hurt my skin when I scratch. One by one, all of the kids climb out of the bouncy house to leave with the parents. And I go back into a corner where no one can see me. I put a finger into my mouth just to feel what's going on. My teeth hurt so much that I'm trying not to burst into tears. I touch my teeth carefully and suddenly feel tiny, sharp edges that I never knew I had. I pull my finger back out too fast and suddenly blood spills into my mouth. I cut the inside of my cheek and there's little red dots that splatter onto my shirt. I get scared and I start crying and Molly, one of the girls from my preschool, sees me and she comes over to ask what's wrong. She sits next to me and puts her hand on my shoulder but then, I don't know why, but I bite her arm hard and she screams. Now we're both crying and the tears and the blood mix in my mouth. My blood and her blood. It tastes like salt and metal but it doesn't taste bad. I cover my face with my hands. I wiggle out of the bouncy castle and I run as fast as I can back into the house. I lock myself in my bathroom and I climb up on my stool so I can see the mirror. I'm so scared of seeing the blood and I'm scared of seeing the fangs inside my mouth. I keep my eyes closed. I just squeeze them shut for a minute. And when I open them, I only see me. My same old blue eyes, my long dark lashes that are wet with tears. My face is still pale and soft, and there's a small red splotch mixed in with my freckles on one cheek. I open my mouth to look at my teeth, but nothing's changed. There's no fangs. They're just like they were that morning when I brushed them. I look down at my hands, and they look normal too. Perfect little nails cut short and straight, just like mommy likes them. But my shirt collar was wet from tears and snot, and it was dirty from wrestling with my new friends in the bouncy house, but there was no blood on it. Mommy tried to get me to come back out, but I stayed locked in the bathroom. I looked at my reflection again. I felt my teeth and my cheek and my fingers. I couldn't understand what just happened, but at least it was over. I'm sitting in math class when my teeth start to hurt. Pre-algebra, I'm here two years ahead of everyone else in the room, surrounded by eighth graders. I'm the smallest in the room by a factor. Mostly, they don't pay attention to me. They're just indifferent to my presence. Unless, of course, they need me to help cram for a test, or unless they just want to cheat off my paper. I guess I don't mind if it means they like me. Sometimes I get mad, though, when I try to sit with them in the cafeteria, and then they act like they don't know me but I don't show it. I know better. I know I have to keep my hurt and anger at their betrayal to myself, just like I keep my beast to myself. Ever since my fifth birthday party, my beast has been coming to visit me. I was so scared that first time. I refused to come out of the bathroom all night, and I cried myself to sleep, curled up in the tub, afraid to come out in case it happened again. I heard my mother crying in the hall, and then I heard my father whisper, this shit is why no one likes him at school, you know. But then in the morning, they acted like nothing happened. They helped me put away all my toys. And when I went back to school on Monday, some of my classmates played with me at recess, but others told me I was awful for biting Molly. 
The teacher moved Molly's desk to the other side of the room, and she stayed away from me for the rest of the year. Slowly, the days went by. The beast didn't return, and I thought I had imagined all of it. I didn't feel my beast for another two years. I had almost forgotten all about it when it came back, and it terrified me. It surprised me. I cut myself and bled and cried again. But the second I looked in the mirror, it was gone. I stayed the whole night in the bathtub again just to be safe. The next time it happened was a little sooner, at the start of third grade. At that time, when I felt an ache in my teeth and my face starting to get itchy, I knew not to scratch it, and I knew not to panic. I just took deep breaths. I very carefully slid the tip of my tongue over my teeth and kind of felt a little bit of a thrill at my secret. One fang made a thin gash on my tongue, just enough to produce a little blood. Again, the metal tasted kind of good. There was no fear, and there were no tears. That time, it tasted like power, and the excitement of keeping it all to myself only increased that sensation. From that time on, I just began to accept the beast. I even began to embrace the beast, my beast. And now I sit here listening to the chalk striking the blackboard, the drone of our teacher explaining the difference between coefficients and constants in an equation, and noticing that the teenage body odor in the room is becoming more pungent. I know now that the teeth will quickly follow. The ache's gotten more intense over the years, yet somehow it feels so good. I wait a minute or so before touching the tip of my tongue to an incisor, pressing it just hard enough to draw blood and savor the taste as it slowly trickles into my mouth. Without looking down, I caress the top of one hand with the other, the thick, coarse hair now feeling comforting and warm. I ever so slowly wrap my claws on the desk, always careful to keep my eyes straight ahead, focused on the teacher. My hearing is so sharp, I swear I can hear the teacher's heart beating, blood pulsing through her veins, through her neck, and I imagine what would happen if I drew my claws across the faint pink and blue lines above her collarbone. But even as I imagine the carnage, I keep my eyes ahead. That's because I learned long ago that if I look down at my hands, it'll all vanish instantly. I know that if I catch my reflection in the windows of the classroom, again, it will vanish instantly. It's true that no one else can see my beast. The beast is invisible to the outside world, but I can't see it either. I can feel it though, feel its power. When it's with me, I'm stronger and more confident. In these moments when my beast visits, I scan the room for my favorites, just to feel the surge of emotions that comes in waves over me. The kids in my class who I want to like me the most, but also the kids in the class I hate the most. Everything's heightened, everything's more intense, not just the smells and sounds, but the desires and the repulsion too. When it gets so intense, I feel like I can't handle it anymore. I quickly look at my hands or deliberately find my reflection in a window pane. And in that split second, I'm empty but calm. I've never let myself go past that point. I don't know what comes next, and I'm a little scared to find out. So for now, I just play this game of hide-and-seek with my beast. The gym is so hot from all the bodies. The parents and grandparents are all crammed into the bleachers, and a couple hundred of us are smushed together in our tiny folding chairs on this rolled-in makeshift stage. 
the air stinks with nearly a thousand people at noon on a June Saturday, no air conditioning, only the doors propped open in a pathetic attempt to bring in fresh air. Of course, it's not working. As the odors start to come over me with greater intensity, I realize I'm not just smelling the sweaty bodies, but the stench of countless perfumes all mixed together. The green fragrance of grass clippings wafting in through the doors and the sweet scent of the girl seated on my left, bleeding gently. I start to feel my beast awaken with both desire and revulsion. The principal's just going on and on, a speech I presume he gives word for word every year at graduation, banal tropes and nasal tones. It makes no difference to me, though. As the ache begins in my mouth, I brace myself for the euphoria that washes over me when my beast comes to visit. Lately, I've noticed a change. I've tried to tell myself it's in my head to set the worry aside, but I can't seem to shake the feeling that something big is happening and I need to find a way to stop it or at least control it. I've been so good at chasing my beast away with a quick glance at myself, but it's getting harder to force that break. What's worse, a few times recently I've been awash in the bliss of the feelings that my beast brings and I caught someone nearby watching me with weary eyes. At first I thought it was all coincidence, but after the last time it kind of became impossible to deny. A girl in my physics class a few lab tables away was just staring at me. Her eyes were squinted, not in an attempt to see better, but in suspicion. Her lips were kind of open as if she was gonna say something and her whole demeanor was alert and she kind of seemed scared. I immediately held my hands up in front of my face, looked at them, and then waved at her as though trying to get her attention. It snapped us both out of the moment, and then I walked over to her and asked her for some notes. She still seemed kind of shaken, but she handed over what she had, and I returned to my own seat. I thought back over the other times I'd noticed girls, it was always girls, staring, and I began to wonder if they could actually sense my beast. It seemed impossible. But now, here in the gym... The beautiful gazelle of a girl who was just clapping and cheering next to me suddenly turns and looks me in the eye. A new scent fills my nostrils and I can't help but inhale it deeply. I know in an instant it's adrenaline. She shakes her head ever so slightly then turns back to face the speaker's podium, no longer clapping or cheering. She's paralyzed with fear. This time I decide to let my beast remain. Let's see what happens. Her fear is adding to my thrill. I'm feeding on it. It's feeding a hunger that I can't name. Eventually, it's my turn to march across the stage. I look dead ahead at the podium, carefully avoiding the sight of my own hands. I want to stay in this moment. I want to see what comes next. But as I collect my diploma, I catch sight of my right hand as the principal shakes it and the beast is gone. But the feeling lingers longer, longer than it ever has. After all the hugging and photos, I head home with my parents for a bit before getting changed for all the graduation parties happening around town. I choose dark jeans and a long sleeve black shirt. It'll be too warm, I know, but I have a feeling that I'm gonna wanna blend in with the shadows, just in case. In case of what, I'm not immediately sure, but on some level, I know I've shifted into a different gear. I'm actively planning. I'm ready to let the beast hunt. It's the third party I've stopped at, sometime around 10 p.m., and I finally spot her. 
She's the one. I can smell it. Red Solo in hand, honey hair brushing her shoulders, smiling at her friend, just blathering away. I keep an eye on her, but I don't approach her. I watch as she leaves her purse on a couch by the front door and just walk away with a friend. No one's looking, so I quickly go over and grab it and pull out her keys. It only takes a few seconds to aim them out the window onto the street, press the lock button, and watch the yellow lights flash to tell me which car is hers. I put the keys back and casually walk away. A couple of hours go by. I pretend to drink, but I don't actually consume a single drop of alcohol. I notice she seems to be nursing the same cup too the whole time. She is stone cold sober, I realize, as she finally begins to say her goodbyes around 1 a.m. I slip out to the yard and scan the line of cars still parked along the driveway and down the block. By the time she emerges from the house, I'm already crouched behind her car. My heart races and I get a faint whiff of delicious adrenaline as she opens her car door. But before she's even seated, I pounce. I graduated from college first in my class, powered through my engineering degree in under three years. Everyone thought I was diligent and hardworking, but the truth is I was desperate to get out of there as fast as possible. I was afraid of losing control. The growing power of my beast, the increasing hunger for fear and adrenaline, and the sea of prey laid out before me every single day. It was almost too much to bear. I tried to play the hide-and-seek game that I mastered in middle school, but one night at this trendy little bar off campus while I was out with some brothers from the frat, as my teeth began to ache and my face began to itch, a woman a few stools down looked at me and erupted into a scream, terrified and furious. What the fuck? What the fuck is wrong with you? My God, what's happening? She was pointing directly at me, looking me dead in the eyes. I totally panicked, and I looked as quickly as I could for a mirror behind the bar to make sure my reflection was just my regular baby face countenance. And it was. No one else saw it, even when she pointed and screamed. Her friends were trying to shush her, told her she was drunk, and tried to calmly ease her out of the place, but she continued to fight with them, and she was whispering as they pulled her out of the door. She was adamant, I'm sure, that she had seen a monster in a button-up and khakis. My brothers laughed it off and I went along with them, but I had a plan. It took me a couple of weeks of asking around, but I managed to learn the name of that screaming girl. I started following her first from a distance and then made a point of turning up in spots that I knew she'd be in, and I made sure she saw me. She was practically bursting with adrenaline every time she came near me, and she was pretty aggressively obvious about leaving any place that I showed up. About six months after that night out with my brothers and my beast, she took a job at a coffee shop, working the closing shift. Early one morning, only about a week after taking the job, she was discovered behind the dumpsters next to the shop's back door, the strings of her dark green apron cinched tightly around her throat. That was the last time I'd given in completely to my beast while I was at school. I told myself that I really had no choice with her, that I had to silence her as a possible witness. But if I'm to be honest, oh God, I reveled in the fear pouring off of her when she saw me emerge from the shadows behind the strip mall. I could taste her hormones going wild. The air was so thick with adrenaline and cortisol, it was almost too much, like a dessert made of too much cream and sugar. That satiated me for months, 
It gave me the strength and energy to finish my degree and get back to some place where no one could see my beast. I made it out of college without any other close calls or scrapes, and even without any more cravings. None powerful enough to give in to, at least. I still laugh a little bit to myself when I think of the irony. In a modern version of running away to join a carnival freak show, my beast and I, now truly one, have found a safe haven in this amusement park. It's remote except for the little town and businesses that have sprung up around it over the years, and it sprawls over nearly 400 acres with nothing but farms on one side and a great lake on the other. It's a small city unto itself. It's my nest. It's my home. My first few years here were spent almost entirely in a little office, out of sight of the guests and the college kids who made up most of the staff. Eventually, I'd risen through the ranks enough that I earned a spot on the design team for a brand new ride. Our park boasted a number of record-breaking coasters in the U.S. and even the world, but we were aiming for a new one, one that would smash previous records. It was going to be taller, faster, scarier than anything the world had ever seen, and I got to be part of it. This meant spending time out in the park during business hours, though, back among the living. At first, I didn't even realize what was happening. I was just minding my own business, paying attention to what the lead engineer said as we toured the park, when I suddenly felt the telltale signs that the beast was going to visit. Suddenly, this kid starts crying a few yards away. But it is an amusement park after all, and the place is crawling with overtired toddlers. So I turn around to see a little girl, maybe two or three years old, pointing directly at me. Her adrenaline was sour, not even enjoyable. The kid's father was so startled, he put his hand over her mouth and got all red from embarrassment and started apologizing. But the kid continued sobbing and wailing and squirming to get out of his arms. I looked around and there were other kids staring at me now too, their faces full of fear. Could they all see the beast? I wasn't sure. I made apologies to my colleagues, said I had a personal matter to take care of, and left as quickly as I could. I looked hard at my hands, willing the hair to recede, but it took a lot more time than it ever had before. I ran to a bathroom and I went straight to the rows of sinks with mirrors behind them. I pulled up my top lip, looking at my teeth. They were almost back to normal, but I could still make out a couple of points. My face was rough to the touch, though very slowly growing smoother. I walked from there as quickly as I could to my office. After that day, I avoided going on site, anywhere in the park, as much as possible. I withdrew from my co-workers, terrified that at any moment I could be found out. I took a leave of absence, stayed in my apartment. I wept. I was like a five-year-old again, curled up in a bathtub while my parents whispered painful things about me on the other side of the door. I was scared. I was starving. I was confused by this development. I had grown so arrogant about strolling through the world, the power of my beast filling me with strength and confidence, selecting my prey in those moments. Now it was clear that the beast was not my secret anymore. First it was just that bitch in the bar. Now it seemed like small children. How many others were there? How long before I was completely exposed? I realized I was running out of time. Very soon everyone would see the beast that had always lived, always existed inside me. 
I stayed gone so long after my sick time had been exhausted that my boss had no choice but to replace me on the team. But he always liked me. He thought I was having some kind of a psychological breakdown, so he made an offer that would allow me to keep my health insurance. Yeah, it would be a big pay cut, he warned, and he said he felt ashamed to offer me such a reduction in rank. But he'd heard that the guest services folks were desperately in need of mascot staff. He kept apologizing on the phone line, but he was worried about my mental health and thought at least this way I could get support through therapy or whatever I needed. It was a lifeline. And for me, it was almost too good to be true. It meant my beast could be safely back in a box. And now here I am in my little kingdom surveying the crowds before me. The smell of adrenaline is strong, but it's a different strain coming over me in ribbons and waves, mixed in with the candied peanuts and hot dogs, the beer and giant turkey legs, the occasional puke from overindulgence in food or roller coasters. I can also smell my own breath and my own sweat inside this ridiculous giant head, the one with a long, hairy snout. I literally laughed out loud when they handed me the suit for the big bad wolf. Talk about serendipity. I chase a group of teenagers around a fountain for a couple of minutes. They howl and screech with laughter, taking turns shoving each other into my path. I kneel down to offer a kindly paw to a young child, but she's scared, and no amount of cajoling from her parents will change her mind. Perhaps she can sense what lurks inside the costume. The parents say sorry, and I just wave it away. It's okay, little girl. I know you're scared of me, and you should be. I figured out early on that I'd have to save every penny I needed to make it through the off-season. I could take on a little side work, stuff I could do from the security of my tiny apartment. I rarely emerged, and when I did, I found ways to remain mostly unseen. As the winter months blew snow and ice across the lake, I was able to go out and about with every inch of my skin covered in wool or fleece, just like everybody else. But I never took the risk of staying too long at the grocery store or the bank. I never sat by a fire in a local bar reading a book as much as I would have loved. But the winters did allow me to venture out and hunt much more than the summers. I knew that if the news started reporting bodies piling up outside the park during the tourist season, anywhere in the region really, everything would come to an end one way or another. But without the need to be in my costume and at work almost every single day, I could spread my wings a bit, so to speak. Right now I'm sitting in a bright chain restaurant watching a group of college freshmen try to pass off their fake IDs to a waiter who knows better, who's seen all this shit before. There's one among them who sparkles more brightly than the others, one that I want more than the rest. My teeth begin to get that itchy ache. I throw down some cash on the table and I gather my winter gear. I quickly bundle up and make an escape to the door just in case. It's February and there's a light freezing rain falling. I know now that I can't chase the beast away. I just have to wait him out or I have to feed him. But it's too early in the night for that, so I'm about to put on my ski mask and wait for the beast to leave. Suddenly, a voice comes out of the darkness. No, don't. I look around. I'm under an awning out of view of the front entrance, and I'm sure I'm alone. Who's there? Now I fear I'm losing control of my mind as well as my body. But the voice is real, and it's tied to a person. He steps towards me from behind a parked pickup truck. I feel my hackles rise. 
He's smaller than I am, quite slight, in fact. He has a sweet face, not rough or ferocious like I know mine is at the moment. Yet he is somehow commanding, dangerous. When he is in just enough of the light, his eyes meet mine. Like the girl in my physics class, like the woman at the bar in college, like the little girl in the park, he sees me. He knows what I am. He looks me dead in the eyes, but he doesn't scream. For the first time in my 30 years of life with the beast, it occurs to me that I might not be alone. My hackles fall and my teeth grow dull. We stand together leaning against the brick wall under the awning. The neon from the sign at the entrance bounces through the freezing drops and reflects on the black ice patches on the road. We're standing in the shadows together, just out of sight, silent. Some time passes and then my companion speaks. There's a group inside I've been waiting for. I know it's the same group I was watching. I don't even have to ask or describe any of them, least of all the shiny one. He has been following her for days. He knows where she lives. He asks me if I would like to feed our beasts together. And I tell him that I would love nothing more. If you're wondering about the title of this amazing story written by Sarah Kalin, it's based on a very loose interpretation of the thought experiment in quantum physics known as Schrodinger's cat. It's a bit of a complicated theory, unless you're a physicist, but to explain it as simply as possible, the idea is that an object both exists and does not exist until it's observed, and that the act of observation can itself change an outcome. Kind of like the philosophical question, when a tree falls in the woods and there's no one to hear it, does it make a sound? In this story, we encounter Schrodinger's beast, who lives undetected inside the narrator. When it emerges, initially no one can see it. But then it starts being detected by women and children around it because, well, we have our spidey senses. And once that happens, it changes the outcome. The beast doesn't just live inside the narrator's head. It comes out in the real world to hunt. So that's where the title came from. But the story, however, has its own background. It is in small part based on the serial killer duo of Stephen Gordon and Frank Cano. Both men were already registered sex offenders being monitored by state and federal parole systems when they met in the mid-2000s. Though it was explicitly prohibited, the pair became very close, even cutting off their ankle monitors and fleeing their supervisory jurisdictions twice in the years after their intense friendship began. In 2013, they began actively hunting and killing women together, with much of their planning documented in text messages. In the spring of 2014, Gordon and Cano were captured in California, bringing an end to their murderous spree. The pair had abducted, raped, and murdered at least five women in under two years. Both had been dangerous predators when they met each other, but their combination was a deadly perfect storm. When at last in captivity after terrorizing Southern California, Gordon begged for the death penalty, claiming he was beyond evil, telling investigators there was an unstoppable monster inside him. 
Though Kano was 15 years younger and a much smaller man, it was ultimately understood that he was just as violent and predatory as Gordon, if not in fact the driving force behind their combustible combination. In the book Sons of Cain, Dr. Peter Vronsky, a journalist and historian specializing in criminal justice, discussed the history of our understanding of serial killers before society understood that that type of human monster existed. Vronsky combed through medieval and Renaissance-era crime records in Europe, and he drew out comparisons and parallels between recorded victim statements and reports of presumed werewolves and vampires and recorded crimes of perpetrators that we now recognize as serial killers of the time. Essentially, Vronsky's work tells us that before we understood what serial killers were, we attributed their work to beasts and monsters that we couldn't explain. Today, we understand that both can be true, existing together in one creature, barely recognizable as human when the mask is torn away. Tonight's story was written by Sarah Kalian. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. <laughs>